0: Hello listeners, Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast,
1: focused on the fringe of Canada.
0: Welcome to part two of Nighttime's coverage of the 1992 Sydney River McDonald's Murders. In the first episode of this series, we got to know our guest, Fonz Jessam, 18-year-old McDonald's employee, Derek Wood, and of course his two co-conspirators, Darren Muse and Freeman McNeil. From there, we heard a step-by-step account of the robbery gone wrong that resulted in the brutal murders of three McDonald's employees. 22-year-old Donna Warren, 29-year-old Neil Burroughs, and 27-year-old Jimmy Fagan. And, of course, we heard how a fourth 20-year-old Arlene McNeil was left permanently disabled. When we left off in part one, the trio were fleeing the scene of Cape Breton's worst mass murder. But they had two major problems. The police were likely on the way as when they shot and killed Jimmy Fagan, They were pretty sure his cab driver had seen what happened. But the biggest problem was that Derek Wood had left his backpack propping open the back door of the restaurant. It's from this point we're going to pick up the storytelling. Tonight, in this episode of Nighttime, we'll continue to discuss the Sydney River McDonald's murders. When we jump back into the story, we'll pick up from the point that Derek Wood got out of the car and separated from his two co-conspirators so he could try and explain the backpack to the police.
1: The um, dispatcher for the RCMP was in the process of juggling resources and dealing with getting the dog team there, getting everybody there, and responding to this. When this kid called and said, I worked at McDonald's, I heard something, I ran away. So he sounded like he was a witness, but not a witness. So Jesse said, just go home. He wrote down his name, we'll get to you. Um, So Derek tried to call his cousin, to get picked up and taken home but couldn't get through his cousin was sleeping so he decided to leave King's Variety and walk to Freeman McNeil's house which is a good walk Mm. to see if he could catch up to the other two Um, he got there they weren't there and he walked back to the to the store and then he saw the roadblock by then the roadblocks had been set up and one had been set up just up the road from King's at the set of lights there Um, it was a Sydney police roadblock so he headed there to tell the police officer, I'm the guy who called. By now, the RCMP were looking for him. I mean, he had disappeared for 45 minutes to an hour. Nobody could figure out where he went. He left the convenience store. That's all the convenience store workers were able to tell the police when they went there looking for him was that he left. Um, because he wasn't told to stay. He was told to go home. And, uh, but he came back. And he went up to talk to that police officer, and he was telling that police officer, I'm the worker, I called, I was there, and the roadblock police officer knew nothing other than something happened at McDonald's, and he was sent to set up a roadblock. Really, he had no information about the nature of the crime, but he knew if this was an employee, this was important. Coincidentally, uh, an RCMP officer came along on an unrelated errand he was running, um, but he saw him, and the, the Sydney police officer said, talk to him, Brian Stoyer. Um So Derek went over and explained again, I'm Derek Wood, I was there, and Brian had heard um, his commanding officer, the, the Corporal uh, Kevin Cleary, uh, explaining to other officers that they were trying to find this Derek Wood who had called Stan Justy. Mm-hmm. So he realized, ah, okay, you're important. My other errand is no longer important. Get in the car. The decision was made then that this, at this point the two bodies were still in the restaurant. Um, you know, They didn't want anyone else contaminating the scene. They didn't want him seeing what was in the scene because whatever he said could and would be used against him in a court of law. And if it was, you know, they didn't want him to know what was inside that restaurant, of course. That's just simple, basic police work. So uh, Stoic was told to take him back to the detachment and to wait, and they would question him later. So he was taken back and put in an interview room where he spent all of the rest of the next day Um, they interrogated him later but it was an unsuccessful interrogation Uh, he handled himself well got himself a lawyer uh, and realized he didn't really have to talk to them his story was that he was smoking and that uh, he had heard the shooting and screams and that he ran Um, they went back to check on the story there were no cigarette butts anywhere near the rear door They found out from other employees they had reached out to by then, whoever was working that shift, that he was smoking in the restaurant, that Don allowed him to sit at a table earlier in the evening. So why was he... It didn't make sense to them. They suddenly became suspicious his story wasn't working. If he could sit at the table and smoke and it was okay with Don an hour earlier, why did he have to hide out the back door and smoke now? Why was his bag there in the first place? If he's leaning there smoking, why did he leave his bag? Why wasn't it over his shoulder when he ran? Why wasn't it lying? You know, I mean, if you step outside to smoke, you're not going to necessarily leave your kit bag propping the door open. Uh, Maybe you are. But um, if he was still in the doorway close enough to hear the shots, they felt he was probably holding the door open and there were no cigarette butts. Mm. So they became suspicious of him right away. Um, They felt he knew more. They did not think he was party to what was at that point the worst crime scene any of those officers had witnessed. They just couldn't put their head around this mop-headed little teenager doing that, but they thought perhaps he had somehow fallen in with a group of serious criminals and they had sucked him into holding the door open. Uh, And they were trying to get that out of him in the first day, but he wasn't going there. But what he did do was tell the truth about how he got to work. And that's where Freeman McNeil enters the picture. Freeman drove him to work that night. Uh, So police then had that name. Uh, So that was their first connection to to Freeman. But he played hardball. He didn't talk. He was cocky in the interrogation. They didn't like the vibe, but they didn't believe he was capable of what they'd seen. They simply thought he was trying to protect someone he was either afraid of uh, or in cahoots with. um, But they didn't believe him from the very beginning.
0: Now, when you uh, first reported on, on this crime, can you describe the reaction of the community as well as nationally when, when this story broke?
1: Nationally and internationally. It was on CNN that morning. Um, it's uh, It was a story that took on a power of its own very quickly. And it's difficult for me to look back 25 years and see what the point was where in in my coverage it became common for me to be stopped everywhere I went and asked about it. But it was certainly within the first 24 to 48 hours. Um, On that first day, you know, if I walked into a Tim Hortons or anywhere else in Sydney, or I was at the RCMP detachment, I was at the McDonald's, I was doing my job... People would ask what was going on. There was a huge interest. We were getting that interest from the desk in Halifax. They were sending the satellite truck to Cape Breton for the very first time. It had never been there, uh, but it was being sent uh, so that we could do live news from Sydney for the first time at the restaurant. Um, other than to see how it was affecting the people of Sydney, and it was that was very evident to me because as the story went on, I couldn't go anywhere without being asked about it. Everybody needed more information than than they were getting. Um, so it, it it became the biggest story in Cape Breton, and it stayed that way for a very, very, very long time. Everybody wanted to know what happened, how it could happen. Everybody wanted to believe that the the killers were from away. There had been a murder in Sydney I covered a couple of years earlier. Kenneth Dale Bright was an escaped American murderer got across the border somehow, got into Sydney and murdered somebody, got caught. Well, people wanted this to be another one like that, that, that nobody from Cape Breton could have done this. This had to be some hardcore killers from away. Maybe they got on the ferry and went to Newfoundland and never got caught. Maybe they got off the island somehow because the roadblocks came down the next day. But, you know, The roadblocks were put up initially at the causeway. They did have to come down eventually. Maybe they slipped back. But the, 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 the thing people continued to say was there's no way anybody locally could have done this. This was in the first 24 hours. But if you think about the scene of the crime, and I touched on that a moment earlier, it's a part of our childhood We went to McDonald's as children for the Happy Meal. We went to McDonald's, and this is sort of, I suspect, a universal North American truth. You went to McDonald's as teenagers, either to work or to pick up girls. It was a hangout. I mean, in the evenings, they catered to the teenage crowd before you were old enough to drive. And then they had the drive-through so you could even come there and drive in and hang out in the parking lot. Certainly we did in Sydney. There was nowhere cooler to be. The only other fast food restaurant was A&W, which was a very traditional A&W then with the the drive-up service only. Mm -hmm. So you couldn't walk in and hang around. So McDonald's was part of the North American culture. We all had a bit of McDonald's in us. We were all familiar with those golden arches. We were all familiar with those kids on the other side of the counter, and that's where the attack occurred. And I think that's what initially spurred that international interest. This was before the the, the you know the mass shootings became. Very regular events and news became a 24 hour cycle, and people became numbed to this kind of violence. This was very unusual. So, the crime touched a piece of the North American fabric, the North American, the the essence of what it was to grow up in North America. McDonald's was part of that. You know, that's not a commercial for McDonald's, but that's a reality of growing up in the 70s, 80s. And then, you know, when this happened in the early 90s, the people who were the consumers of news were the people who grew up in the 70s and 80s, and this had happened in their restaurant.
0: We're going to take us out of the interview for a moment so I can better set up the next part of this talk with Fons. Keep in mind that at this point in the story, the police were under a tremendous amount of pressure to bring justice to those responsible. Yet, aside from Derek's odd story and the torrent of rumors that were circulating, law enforcement didn't have a lot to go on. But at least temporarily, this was going to change dramatically. A random tip came in, and it named the people responsible, and it seemed to have some credibility. As you can imagine, police sprung into action. Fons will walk us through this set of false arrests.
1: That was too good to be true. Um, Proof of that adage, I guess. Uh, It walked in the door in the form of a young woman um, who implicated her brother and a friend and said that she was with them in the car at the government wharf when they threw the gun in the harbor. Um, She had mental health issues. Um, But there was no way for the police at that point to know that. Um, her evidence was sound, but our coverage was good, so she simply repeated what we 'd reported in order to to explain to the police what she 'd been told what she 'd been told is what she 'd seen on television, heard on the radio, or read in the paper, nothing more she didn 't um, repeat any of the rumors about the the cult. Or, 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 you know, the ritualistic nature of the crime. So they weren't able to dismiss her as a flake immediately because she wasn't talking about those things. The, they brought in the emergency response team from Halifax to make the arrests because they were, realized they were arresting people who had used a gun and clearly were violent. I mean, they'd all seen that scene. Nobody wanted to knock on the door and ask a suspect to come in from questioning. They wanted to take these guys down hard. The, the busts were planned for early in the morning, they had the place their their homes staked out. Uh, one of them left home unexpectedly in his van. He was driving down the road, and they rammed it with the earth team, and he didn't know what had happened. He said, you know, it was just this loud bang, and I'm not using names here deliberately because there's a certain stigma attached to this crime, mm-hmm. and they were innocent. Mm-hmm. They had nothing to do with it, and it's there's no need at this point in their lives for people to be asking them about it. They've walked away from it. Um, but... They were arrested in, in Hollywood fashion, with machine guns pointed at them, um, balaclava-wearing, Kevlar-wearing police officers, scenes like Sydney had never, well, in this case, Glace Bay, which is where they were from, but Cape Breton had never seen. Um, and word spread quickly that arrests had been made. The RCMP held a, uh, a news conference at a hotel to celebrate the news. By then, it was starting to creep into their command structure that it might have been wrong. But the freight train was rolling. They had called this news conference at 3 in the afternoon. We, for the very first time ever, decided at ATV to take this news conference live. I would host it from the scene, throw it back and forth, something I had never done and had no idea how to do. And it was very awkward. I, I remember Dave Roper came out, and I threw very quickly to the anchor in Halifax saying the news conference is about to begin here. Um, he said what had to be said about who the participants were as they got in in place at the podium. We listened, we were told the arrests had been made, they went successful, that the individuals would be appearing in court either later that day or possibly the next morning. Um, (laughs) It was a very awkward moment. At that point, the anchor spoke to me in my earpiece and said, we need you to take it from now, wrap it up, and throw back to Dave so we can go back to regular programming. So I stood up and turned to the camera, and remember, this had never been done. This was brand new. It's common today, but it was brand new technology then, the satellite truck chugging away outside and a reporter standing up at a news conference and suddenly talking to his camera, not paying attention to what was going on. so as I began to speak to the camera and to the anchor back in Halifax, Dave Roper stopped the news conference. And he really didn't know how to react because suddenly I had turned my back to him and I was talking in a in a broadcast voice, louder than he was. Mm-hmm. And uh, finally, one of the print reporters just said, just ignore him and keep going. So they did. And it was the, just took a ton of pressure off me at the time. But that's an indication of how big this was, that, that we went live and interrupted the afternoon programming to bring the news that arrests had been made. It didn't take long for a crowd to form at the Sydney courthouse. Mm-hmm. Um, people lined up outside. They wanted to look at these guys. Well, they never made the court appearance in the afternoon, so we moved the satellite truck there and did the 6 o'clock news from there, waiting, still waiting. Um, But I was beginning to get hints from some of my police sources that this may not be them. And that was not what I wanted to hear. That was not what anyone wanted to hear. You know, it was bad enough that they were local. Um, People couldn't believe that, but we wanted arrests. Everybody wanted fast arrests, right? Let's make this thing go away. Um, But by the 10 o'clock news that night, I was still live in the same parking lot reporting that they'd been released, that they were not involved. Their alibis checked out. They were innocent. It's interesting, again, I'm deliberately not using their names, but they they had said, they had that feeling. I've interviewed people before who were innocent and arrested, and initially you feel this is not going to, this is stupid, this is you know a mistake. And you have that feeling of an innocent man, and they had that and never lost it. As serious as the police were and as angry as the police were, they believed, look, boys, check it out. We've got alibis. We're fine. And they never did get into that feeling that comes later when someone who was innocent and prosecuted uh, realizes that this is going to stick to me somehow. This can't be happening because they were very quickly vindicated by their friends uh, and released. But um, that really, really hurt the RCMP officers involved in this case, because it was such a high, so fast, so Hollywood. Got it, bang, nailed, you know, let's all go home. And then it was back to square one, boys. Let's take a look at this Wood character again. And you could see it in the body language. Mm. You could hear it in the officers I was talking to or share a cigarette with. They were crushed. The people of Sydney were as well. They they wanted it to be true. And they they would ask questions, you know, do you think that they did it and they, they got false out and and I and I constantly you know would say no it wasn't them it was a mistake it was a mistake she was charged with mischief which was the surest sign that it was a mistake the police charged the person who came in um, that later disappeared but at that at that time it was sort of the death knell you know it, it told you yeah this was wrong they charged the person who reported them
0: you know, as all this was going on uh, Wood Muse and uh, Freeman McNeil were on the lamb. What were they doing with their time, and, and how much money was it that they actually got from the robbery?
1: They weren't on the lam, which means on the run. They didn't go anywhere. They stayed home. Um, they didn't connect with each other. They stayed away from each other. Um, all they got was 2000 and change. Not 200000 2000 and change. All of this over that. It's still frightening to think about. What did they do with the money? Darren Muse, in his statement to police, talked about the night of the murder. He drove past, when Freeman was driving him back to a convenience store he wanted to go to to play poker machines, he drove past me on the highway um, and described seeing the ATV news van there. So this was within an hour of, of, of the killings. And he went to a convenience store and started to play video poker with money from those murders. Um, most of the money stayed with Freeman McNeil. After the murders, when when Derek Wood got out of the car to go create his alibi, they went to destroy evidence. They went to Freeman's house. They hid their clothing. They went and things that they felt were bloody and and would lead uh, police to them, they discarded some in a brook uh, not far from Freeman McNeil's house. Some they put into the uh, Sydney Harbour near a bridge in North Sydney, uh, and that evidence was never recovered. The tides took that away. Um, And then, after getting rid of their evidence, making sure they were clean, they had clean clothes on, that's when the drive back to Sydney occurred, and and Darren went back about his life as though nothing had happened. He continued to gamble, hang out at the pool hall, um, and just... Darren, the only difference his friends noted was that he wasn't asking people for loans or looking for money because he never had money. Suddenly he had money. So he was spending. Not a lot, obviously. They only had $2,000. Freeman um, went to the music stores where he had laid away some some components, some stereo components, and he he purchased them with $5 bills. He he paid off the difference with, with fives. And it was noted in a couple of stores later when the police... Retrace their steps, that it seemed odd that, and he joked with one uh, clerk who, who questioned, What's with all the fives? He said, Well, you know, don't ever cash your pogey check at Wilco, free Walmart. <laughs> um, and they just laughed it off. And uh, yeah, they started spending right away. Derek never got a dime, didn't want a dime, didn't ask for a dime, never spent a dime. Um, I think he was probably in shock, uh, first of all, for having spent so many hours in police custody in the first few hours. Secondly, he knew these people, you know, and I think as the reality set in, he just didn't want the money. And the other two were the bigger personalities. They, there was no meeting afterward or, or plan for what to do afterwards, so the other two just went about spending the money, and Derek went about being the shy guy that nobody really had much to do with. The only people interested in Derek were the RCMP. They brought in their special O team from Halifax, the observation team, to keep an eye on him and keep him in a box. Um, I found that out very quickly because one of their uh, observation points was the ATV parking lot on George Street because he was staying at a cousin's house just down the road. And I quickly recognized the car that didn't belong in the parking lot for what it was. Um, and gradually got out of the officer behind uh, the wheel that he was with Special O and that, that you know, if he would prefer it if I get in the car and talk to him or, you know, was it okay if he stayed there, but if I didn't stand by his window and draw attention to him. So um, I kept an eye on him, and it helped me in my reporting to know that the police were still monitoring his activities just down the road.
0: Mm-hmm. So at this point, they, they had already spoke to Derek, the, the next day, and had their, well, that night into the next day, and they had their suspicions of him, but what led the authorities to focus the investigation now on Wood, McNeil, and Muse
1: Well, they went back to Wood after realizing that the, the first arrests were false arrests. He was all they had. They had their suspicions um, that he had not, they knew he hadn't told them the truth, certainly not all of the truth. Um, and they needed to find out more, but they weren't ready at this point to bring him back in for another round of questioning because they simply didn't have the evidence. So what they did was they went about uh, preparing the tedious amount of paperwork required at the time, and I suspect still today, to get a wiretap so that they could tape uh, conversations in the home where he was staying and in a payphone that this Special Observation Team had seen him using. So they got wired, very difficult to get wiretap on a payphone. Uh, The agreement then was when the officers saw him on the phone, they could record. um, And if anyone else in the house that he was staying in were using the phone, they couldn't record. It was simply the, the wiretap, while it was for two phone lines, was actually for Derek Wood. And this wasn't his home, which made it more complicated. But again, he was all they had, but they had nothing. They had suspicions. So they needed to build a case. Um, they were still pulling together the pieces of the forensic evidence gathered inside the restaurant. Um, you know, and this was before people even knew what forensic evidence was, and certainly before television convinced people that you could get DNA out of a cloud in the sky and, and turn it in 24 hours. I mean, forensic science is a slow, methodical process. So they were, they were you know, they had footprints. They had, um, they had taken his shoes on the first time they had it first because they knew there were footprints downstairs Uh, but there hadn't been a match made yet so they had their suspicions they focused on him and then went to see freeman mcneil because of course he gave them freeman there was no need for him on that first day of questioning to say freeman drove me to work that was the dumbest thing he could possibly have done because he sent the police to go talk to freeman mcneil he could have said i took a bus to work he could have said i walked to work But he told them Freeman McNeil drove him to work. So, of course, they had to go interview Freeman McNeil. wasn't what Freeman expected a couple of days later. But he had the look and bearing of a police officer. He had worked as a private security guard, was looking to get into that. And the police wanted to like him. And they did. They had no qualms about the story he gave that yeah he drove him to work dropped him off and he at the time that he fled the restaurant with with Darren Muse after dropping wood off he did go to his home to hide the money and his mother woke so he told her at that time he had to get a puffer for his girlfriend who had asthma that she had left it at the house so he needed to explain that and Darren was with him so he gave the police Darren. In his statement, he said he was driving through Sydney, saw a buddy of his over by Pocket's Pool Hall, which was where Darren Muse would hang out, picked him up, said, Do You want to go for a drive? I got to go get my girlfriend's puffer. They went up, got the puffer, came back, all easily checked, but now he gave them Darren Muse. So they now had to go talk to Darren Muse as well about, you know, to confirm Freeman's story, but they had no doubts about Freeman. They really did believe him. The first four police officers who encountered him and questioned him believed him. He, he was a good sell. He, he convinced them of everything he said, and, and they were willing to accept it as gospel. They just thought he was just some guy they'd be calling to the witness stand to say, yes, I dropped Derek Wood at the restaurant at the beginning of his shift that night, and all, no further involvement in this event. They had no sense whatsoever that he was involved. Muse, he raised the suspicion of Sergeant Phil Scarfe, who um, didn't like reporters then. Uh, But he was a very, very, very serious police officer and polygraph officer, and he had set up in North Sydney to give polygraphs to all the witnesses so they would make sure this thing was done by the book. So the first day Darren Muse was picked up, um, he was asked if he could just give a polygraph as well to support his statement that, yes, Freeman McNeil picked me up. We went to his house. Then he dropped me off at a Sanitary Dairy where people had seen him gambling that night. Um, that was his story. Um, he didn't want any part of Phil Scarf or the polygraph. And Scarfe's antenna went off right away. He felt there's something with this guy. This guy's not right. There's something wrong here. I don't know what They didn't have any reason to believe he was involved in the crime, but Scarf didn't understand why a kid who got in a car, drove to a guy's house, and then drove to a store, wouldn't take a polygraph. Um, He claimed he was too tired, he didn't know he needed this, he needed... Anyway, he talked them out of the polygraph on the first go-round. So, so they dropped him back home, but now he went from being a simple witness to a person of interest, and the police officer um, convinced him as he dropped him off, look, and told his parents, we need your help in this, Darren. We want to take you over tomorrow. You're tired now. We'll do a polygraph tomorrow. Um, so he had managed in his his first meeting with Phil Scarf to go from incidental, meaningless witness to somebody we need to have a closer look at. Uh, so he... Is the reason the police began to suspect that he knew something? Mm-hmm. Um, Derek led them to Freeman. Freeman led them to Darren. So now they had the trio. They just didn't know it. Mm-hmm. Um, so on that second day, when Darren went over again, um, he had convinced the officer who was with him that he was just afraid of Phil Scarf. That's believable. Phil Scarfe was a very intense guy. But they said, that's okay. We have another polygrapher, nicer guy. He'll do it with you. So the ultra-confident Darren Muse convinced himself that through his martial arts training, um, he could calm his body and beat the machine. So he went, and they did a test first. And the test they did involved a deck of cards. You pick a card. You look at that card... Put it back in the deck. Don't tell me what it is. I'm shuffling the cards. So now we're going to ask you to say no. I'm going to show you back all the cards. This is what the polygraph officer was explaining to to Darren Muse. I will show you all the cards, and you have to say no. So they went through the deck. Is this your card? No. Is this your card? No. Is this your card? No. So I went through the full deck. Then the polygrapher went through, pulled out the card, said, that's your card. It was his card. And then he showed him how his body had betrayed him when the lie came up. Well, said Muse wanted practice. He said, "Let's do it again." And the polygrapher said, "No, no, no, no. That's a waste of time. You understand now that it works." So he still kind of thought he could beat them, and he didn't. He failed. And where he failed was, "Do you know anything about the robbery? Were you involved in the robbery? Do you know who was involved in the robbery?" The questions. They didn't ask him if he shot anybody, but he failed. So now he's a man of serious. Interest to the investigators, but they have nothing. So he, they kept him there for quite a while. But he whined and cried and managed to finally convince him. You said I could go home. You said I could go home. You said I could go home. Well, legally he could go home. He wasn't asking for a lawyer. He just wanted to go home. So they let him. And the police officer drove him home. Went in and spoke to his parents and said, "There's something wrong. He knows something, and he's not telling. And we need him to be honest." And his parents lit into him and said you've got to tell them everything you know and he said well I'll think about it I don't know what I and he went went to his room and they they left him there and left for the night and he faked his own suicide attempt that night and wrote a very self-serving letter about he knew who did it it was guys from Halifax but they'd kill him if he talked and said they'd kill his family and I can't you know leave you know subject you to this danger so I'm going to end my own life and allegedly took some pills and alcohol and and but more or less wrote a suicide note that was to cover the failed polygraph test. Um, and that was where he was in terms of polygraph. Then they went to Freeman, McNeil. This all happened very quickly. Um, and wanted his polygraph again. The officers believed Freeman, that He had no involvement other than driving his friend to work. Um, And they expected his polygraph to be one of the very quick, routine ones, like some of the McDonald's workers they had done, you know, who had seen what happened earlier in the day, the taxi drivers, other people they were doing were all passing. These were all witnesses. And that's all he was to them, was a witness. Well, he failed. And that was the beginning of the end for the three of them. Because his answer to having failed was to slowly give statements that he knew, that he knew some, that he knew it was Derek and Darren, that they did it, that he wasn't involved, Then he was involved a little bit. He kept giving... He complained that they kept him there so long, but they had no choice because he kept changing his statement. They had to keep trying to verify what he was saying. But by this point, he was in North Sydney handing them everything um, except anything to incriminate him. Even in his most incriminating statement, he claimed he blacked out. He didn't know what his involvement was. He remembered hitting the guy with the stick. He remembered Derek going crazy, shooting everybody. He denied ever having the gun. He said, I think I remember seeing Darren Muse put the gun in my hand and the gun went off when there was a guy in the doorway. That's as close as he came to admitting, you know, that he was the one who shot Jimmy Fagan. Um, but it blew away the investigators. They suddenly had everything, even though they recognized that this guy was trying to, to reduce his own involvement. And for whatever reason, McNeil believed he was still going to get out of jail that night, despite giving them all this. Um, so he learned differently. Um, and when he finally did give, he, he and this, we're, we're talking like a very long overnight into the next day kind of period of time. Um, He did get to talk to a lawyer. And in the point where he finally gave it all up, one of the guys taking the statement needed a break and stepped out, and his lawyer was there. And the officer's heart just sank because they were at the point where he was finally really this statement admitting that he was involved and who did what. To whom, when, and where, and it fit the evidence they all knew from the scene, so they knew they weren't being lied to this time, and they had to let the lawyer go in. The lawyer requested, and they thought it was over. We're not getting anything, and then went back in, and McNeil said, "No, I still want to. I want to get it. You know, I want to get it all out. I want to help you guys." And this is a testament to how they had worked and worked and worked and worked on his humanity, on everything they could to try and befriend him. I mean, it's an art, right? The art of interrogation, and they were good at it. And they had won him over to the point where even though a lawyer went in and said, shut up, he said to the lawyer, OK, and then he said to the police, I'll continue. And he did. And that was the most damning statement, the one where he admitted pretty much everything except his own involvement. He blacked out.
0: And it was from uh, McNeil's confession that eventually led, led to the arrests of the three yep. men. yep. Uh, Can you just describe the scene or or the the events as they unfolded during the arrests?
1: Yeah, I was there when um, Derek Wood was arrested. I was there and I wasn't there. We had gear problems. Um, I had picked up from, I was talking to that special O interrogator I mentioned to you, the observation guy. He was still in the parking lot. And I had gone outside for a cigarette and I was just chatting him up outside his car. It was on a Friday night I think. It all became a blur back then, but I'm reasonably certain this was... Yeah, it was a Friday night. It was a Friday night. Um, And I had been in the habit of listening to his radio very carefully during our conversations. I'd split my mind and listen to him and be able to engage in the conversation. Um, But I was really more interested in hearing what his radio was saying because we didn't have that channel on our scanner. I couldn't listen to that in the newsroom, so I would go out, have a cigarette, talk to him. And I heard the Irish Club and Daniels. Mentioned, and then he said, "I gotta go." So I ran in and grabbed the cameraman and said, "We're you know we're going to one of these two places. I don't know which." Mm-hmm. And when we got down to Townsend Street, I spotted one of the police SUVs, and I had a close source not directly connected to the investigation, but a longtime member of the emergency response team, a different emergency response team in a different province. Um, But he was familiar with their techniques and what they would do, and they were still responsible for making the arrests. And he told me to go look for a group of guys who look at a place outside a bar. He said, you know what the bars are. You know what a police officer looks like. You know these guys, the guys are much more fit. They're going to be trying to fit in. They're a little older. They're all going to be built like they push weights all the time. So I went looking for that and found it very quickly outside the Irish club, four of them trying to talk to people in the line and just trying to plan if they were going to go in for the evening or not and just blend in, waiting for Derek to come out. They didn't want to go in to the uh, club and create a scene, but Derek and his cousin, who was arrested initially because they they thought he was involved, um, were both in there. But they did come out because their plan was to start at the Irish club, then go to Daniels. So when they come out, which is when we came back around the corner, they slammed them up against the wall, you're under arrest, you're charged in the murder of, bang, bang, in the car, poof, they were both gone. Darren Muse was another story. He was home, in bed, and they kept him there. They, the uh, special old car that was on him was just down the road from ATV in a church parking lot. Um, he had gone home, and they knew that's where he was, so they knew they were in no hurry, he wasn't going anywhere. So they got Muse and took him uh, to a different detachment, but he played pretty hardcore. He wasn't giving them anything in the the interrogation that eventually led to the polygraph. He was a hard nut to crack. He broke one interrogation team and nearly broke a second. He had learned the first time that just because these guys have you doesn't mean they have you. And he knew that he could just wait them out because he had done it a week earlier. So he was the experienced criminal now. So he was not going to give up anything. Mm -hmm. Um, Then they went... And picked up Darren Muse and brought him in. And he wasn't so hard to break. Once they showed him, and they showed, I believe, Derek as well, what Freeman had said. And for Derek, they also brought in his shoe, which they had recovered from the the scene where he had discarded that. And another piece of evidence that really shook him up. I think it was the shovel that Freeman McNeil had stuck under the road. Because Freeman took them on a drive-through after his statement and showed them where everything was. Mm-hmm. They had recovered the shoe and the cash box and some of the evidence earlier because a local commercial or um, recreational fisherman had found them a day or so after the, the uh, crime. So they had evidence from that area, but they didn't have it all. But Freeman took them and got them the rest. It was the cash. Derek took them because Muse was the last to finally break. When Derek finally did break, he um, he didn't implicate others the way both Freeman McNeil and Darren Muse tried to under, they tried to diminish their own roles and, and vilify Derek because he is, after all, the one who started shooting. Mm-hmm. Um, but Derek, to his credit, when he finally broke, there was that moment, I remember still, even though I knew, when I watched the, the polygraph tape, when he finally picked up They had the indictment in front of him with all the charges. He went, guilty, guilty, not guilty, guilty, not sure. He admitted what he did. He told them what he did. He told them he didn't know what was going on with Neil Burroughs, but that he admitted he shot him at least once and maybe twice. When they said Burroughs had been shot twice, he said, well, I know I shot him once. But he he wasn't saying he didn't fire that second shot, but he, he admitted he shot him. He admitted everything he did and he put nothing on the other two other than to say that Freeman McNeil came, he thinks it was Freeman who took the gun from him in the office and that's how the gun ended up back in play with others when they left and Jimmy Fagan got shot. But he took them to a place where he helped Darren Muse hide his money. It was a pond where they were smoking drugs after the crime and Darren wanted to hide his plastic bag full of twos remember the days of the two dollar bill before the toonie he had a lot of two dollar bills they robbed they robbed mcdonald's yeah um in 1992 where you i'm sure could get a big mac for one dollar so uh they he he put it underneath a log in a pond underwater really hard to get at in fact the police couldn't find it when he took them there and finally uh wood himself said let me get it so they took the cuffs off him and he went out and he got it So when they showed that to Darren Muse, and he realized, my buddies have turned me in. There's no way they could have that money unless Derek took them, because only two people in the world knew where that money was, him and Derek, and he sure as hell didn't tell them. So then he was the last to break. He too gave a self-serving statement in which he implicated the others that their role was much more significant than his. The only thing he admitted to doing was slicing the throat of Neil Burroughs, which he said he did to try and put him out of his misery because he was suffering. He even tried to make that appear to be an act of mercy. Um, So he gave a statement that implicated Freeman in the shooting of uh, Jimmy Fagan, and he said he shot Burroughs and club Burroughs and was, was the main participant in the torture of Neil Burroughs. He certainly put it all on Derek Wood for both Freeman McNeil and Derramuse described Derek Wood as going crazy with the gun and none of them expected that. Um, But by 16, 18 hours, the police had all three confessing. All three gave it up, two pointing their fingers at everybody but themselves and one pointing at himself, but not the others. The only one who really did what inmates in prison would consider a solid confession was Derek Wood this is what I did, is what he said. He didn't say what the others did. The others said they did this, I did very little.
0: It's at this point we're gonna take a break in the storytelling. As we just heard, all three men admitted to playing some role in this mass murder. And because of that, you may think the story's on its way to a quick resolution. But as you'll hear in part three of this series, The trials that are about to follow are a story all on their own. And that's what we're going to talk about in the next episode. So with that, we'll end this episode of Nighttime. But before we go, I have some thanks. First, a huge thank you to Fonz Jessum for appearing in this episode. I'd also like to thank the Toronto-based band Voxomnia, who provided the musical theme. And lastly, but most importantly, a huge thank you to the listeners of Nighttime. Without you, this show would have seen the light of day many moons ago. If you want more nighttime, let me recommend the premium feed. For about the price of a cup of coffee, you can access the premium feed where the episodes are posted earlier than in the free feed and are done so without paid advertising. But it gets better than that. The premium feed includes additional content that will take you further down the rabbit holes. In the case of this episode, I'll be sharing a really entertaining story Fawn shared that involved him meeting and briefly discussing this case with the famous actor Nicolas Cage. That'll be on the premium feed shortly. You can access it at patreon.com slash nighttime And with that said, let me thank the newest subscribers to the premium feed. Eileen and JD Ryan, thank you for your generous support. And for anyone else out there who'd like to support the show but can't help financially, you can give me a big hand by telling your friends about me and leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts or whichever equivalent you're using. If any of you listening want to stay up to date with my activities on or off the show, follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm using the handle at NighttimePod. If you have any story ideas or want to give feedback on the show, you can contact me at nighttimepodcast.com dot com slash contact now until next time take care of each other hug your loved ones tight and let me know if you see anything weird
1: The Nighttime Podcast is written hosted and produced by Jordan Bonaparte Copyright Jordan Bonaparte